What I'd like to do um, is in here in just a second, I'm going to show you a video, but let me set it up first. Um, you know, I think about the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? I don't know uh, what comes to your mind in answering that question, um, if anything really at all. Uh, I can tell you that when I was in college, uh, I'd been to church, you know, all my life. Uh, I just didn't hear a, really much of anything about the Holy Spirit. Part of that could be I just wasn't paying attention. But um, there were uh, certainly a, a good period. I, I, I was. And um, I don't remember hearing a great deal about it. And um, was, if anything, it was more in passing. And so um, I really didn't have much of an idea uh, that it, was, it did much of anything, uh, maybe more of a, if anything, it was a token of appreciation for my saying, hey, God, I'll become a Christian. And God kind of gives me this little memento called the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was inanimate, you know, it didn't really do it. It's kind of like a paperweight that sits on your desk, and it's just there. Uh, but it wasn't really doing anything. And, um, uh, you know, of course, as I began to really get into this, uh, even in my college years, trying to answer these questions, um, you know, it, it uh, you know, I'm going to say, well, it sure sounds like he's doing something. And, um, uh, and, I, and I also, you know, kind of had always the impression that if he is there, he's kind of like a holy helicopter, kind of hovering above, you know. Uh, but the scriptures keeps talking about the Spirit of God indwells you. He's a live-in. And, and uh, so uh, uh, I'm hoping that as we uh, go through this, series of classes and we actually stop and pause thoughtfully and scripturally to look at this thing and ask some of the hard questions, uh, we'll find the Spirit of God is very, very active in your life and certainly trying to do some things. Um, and uh, it would be nice to be cognizant of it. And uh, uh, so, but I want to start with a video because um, uh, you're going to see that um, if you have a very tame view of the Spirit's activities, you're going to find that not everyone shares that. Uh, in the broader spectrum of Christendom in, uh, around the globe, what I'm about to show you is not uncommon. It's not the fringes, the people off the radar. Um, in fact, uh, it's what's associated today with what they term the charismatic movement, which is coined. I'm going to talk a little bit about that surfacing today. Um, specifically, uh, back in 1994, that's what this video is uh, uh, from YouTube uh, comes from. Uh, it was called the Toronto Blessing. And those in that sphere of belief um, um, suggested that it was a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit. Now, you're going to see what I think for most, if not all of you, is rather, um, you might term it kind of very bizarre behavior. Um, now, I was in... Uh, circulated in these circles uh, when I was in college, so I've witnessed a good bit of what you're about to see in person and on different levels, uh, and I will be talking about that as we move on in this semester. But I, I, uh, so don't freak out with this, just see that, but what I want you to catch is this. The people that are doing the things that you're about to see will tell you the reason that they're doing them is because the Holy Spirit is making them do these things. The source is the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, these are the things that you do. If you're really open to God working in your life, this is where you will end up, too. So understand the connection there. That's why I'm showing this to you. What does the Holy Spirit do? Um, and uh, 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 
there are many different answers to that question in our culture today. So, uh, uh, without further ado, let me just let you see it, about two and a half minutes, and then we'll pick back up and we'll begin to look into this. Okay. You go ahead and put the PowerPoint on. Just turn off the uh, internet first. Um, while we're making the transition, um, so what are your impressions? Of course, you're getting little brief snapshots. Um, understanding everything that you saw, if you were to talk to each of those individuals and in perhaps what you might call more saner moments, they would say, well, the reason this happened to me is because I was taken over by the Spirit of God and this is where it led me. And of course you saw very, you know, several vestiges of it. Uh, um, uh, holy laughters. People, this, this whole congregation is uncontrollably laughing. Um, which, by the way, was one of the signature uh, uh, manifestations of the, what is called the Toronto Blessing. If you notice, they kept showing Toronto and the airport. It was the airport church in Toronto. That's why it was called the Toronto Blessing. I, I meant to mention that. And um, uh, again, this phenomenon, uh, you know, really crosses the globe. Um, and of course, you saw people being leashed, walking around like dogs, barking. Uh, some were acting like other animals. Um, people just what they call swoon in the spirit. And we're going to talk about some of this. Um, so, what are your impressions? I mean, you hear this. Uh, um, uh, what does the Holy Spirit do? 
Um, what are your thoughts? I'm just going to know what your impressions are and what you think as you're watching all of this and, and answering the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? I, I feel it's uh, like the great old uh, fairy tale, the emperor's new clothes, okay. where every, everyone does, everyone wants to say, well, I don't, this, this, this can't be right, but everyone else sees this new food, he's completely naked, I, I guess I need to go along with it. Okay. It wasn't until, okay. of course, the little kid pointed out, but... Associating more with group behavior and the ability of uh, mass mass behavior, herd behavior, to convince uh, individuals, and certainly there's there's certain truth to that that can happen. By the way, there, there's, a, there's a name for that phenomenon, and we'll, I will talk about that later. Um, I saw your hand up. Any 
Um, could we, uh, uh, we can go on and on. I appreciate your, your thoughts. Obviously, I'm just trying to get your wheels spinning a bit. By the way, you can turn my mic down if you want to. You don't have to be up. Um, it was on. And um, where was I? Um, but getting your, you know, just getting the wheels spinning in your mind and think about this. Obviously, I'm going to explore a lot of these things and try to place them in some setting. Because uh, I told you I used to be part of this. And when I was in college, uh, I, I delved in with both feet in my searching processes. And, and uh, I'll tell you what my personal experiences are and what I experienced and those kind of things. Um, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, regardless of how you interpret this, we have to have some way of filtering this. Of course, you know, to me, I always ask the most fundamental questions. Has God spoken? If so, what exactly has he said? Um, you know, uh, certainly human nature and human impulse, we can be swept off into just about anything. Human history says, tells us that very clearly on all levels, certainly within the realm of religion. That is probably one of the most uh, uh, obvious manifestations of this idea of being swept away into uh, thoughts and behaviors that... Uh, can be very foreign to God, and um, uh, ironically, everyone reading the same scriptures but not coming to very same conclusions. And um, so, you know, I think this is an important question, and um, uh, I think the Spirit of God is extremely active. Uh, uh, just in short, uh, I, I see this as more of a hysteria, and hysteria can move you to absurd behaviors. Uh, but I like I'll you know not just say that and hit and run. I'll come back and we'll talk more specifically about each of these things. But uh, uh, I'd like to, to actually explore this idea, and I want to start by showing you that this really does come from some place in terms of what I would call a theological tree. Uh, so let me take a little time. I know this is a little bit of theology. Theology shouldn't complain, uh, scare you. It simply shows you that people, in terms of how they process scriptures and how they what they come up with and create frameworks, uh, theological frameworks, how to believe. And if I put this in there, you can begin to see where people got to where they are today with certain beliefs. In other words, they didn't just drop out of the sky like this. Um, you all know John Wesley, well-known uh, 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 Bible scholar. Um, and uh, uh, he developed what was termed Wesleyan perfectionism. And um, some of this should sound very familiar because I've already kind of hinted at it earlier as we developed, but I'm kind of giving you further development of this. And uh, so I hope you'll see where this goes. Um, in the basic framework, it is this. The suggestion is that conversion comes in stages. That when you first come to Jesus, you're not a complete Christian. You're an incomplete Christian. And... Um, so you, you, you go through the process when you first come to Jesus, you are justified. Understanding it's a, that's a legal term in scriptures. It's a, if you do the research in the Greek word just, justified or justification, um, uh, it's a courtroom. It's where uh, the, 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 the judge rules you not guilty, where our sins are forgiven, where we are placed once again back in a right relationship with God. That's justification. Um, uh, the other stained glass word is sanctification. These are two separate and distinct ideas, but you'll find them in scriptures holistically placed together, which is part of why I have a problem with what I'm about to show you, because here you see them fragmented. Two separate stages. 
Um, <clears throat> sanctification, we're going to talk about in just a moment, and so I'm just going to put that on hold. The idea of setting you apart and your being in special service to the Lord. <clears throat> now, understand the idea, again, that you are an incomplete Christian when you first come to Jesus. You are justified, but you are not yet sanctified. Okay? And um, so you're dealing, first of all, with the understanding that, that, that uh, there is a subsequent event that one should seek. And that, that subsequent event is, is uh, um, earned. We talked about the Galatian. Remember, we talked about this. Uh, the idea of, of, of I have to do some things to achieve this moment where I receive this sanctifying moment in my life. I, and it comes to fully surrendering. So as I finally give my life to God and I give it wholly, then uh, this moment comes upon my life. Now, there are certain things that are associated in terms of how Wesley perceived this. First of all, he said it is a higher experience. In other words, sanctification is a greater experience than justification. So you should seek it because it's, it, you're, you're, you're now not a nominal Christian. You're now a fully developed Christian which should maybe raise some flags if you get some ideas that it's separating Christians between nominal and superior in a way. Uh, I, I already have a fundamental struggle with that. Um, but I can see if I buy into this that, well, okay, this is a higher experience. Of course, I wonder how could something be greater than becoming a child of God? Um, so, but, but it said it was a higher experience. Also, it was instantaneous. In other words, you build up to this point that when you finally get to this point where you are fully surrendered to God, it hits you like a bolt of lightning. It happens instantaneously. That boom, you're also immediately fully sanctified. So you go from building up and turning on the engine and getting it revved up and getting on, and finally when you get to that point when God thinks you're ready, He by his own uh, 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 initiative, boom, hit you with it, and you are now, uh, uh, have this experience where you are now fully sanctified. You became a full Christian now. And that's why I use the idea of fullness. We talked about that in Colossians, if you remember. And not only is it a higher experience and it happens instantaneously later on in a subsequent event, fragmented conversion, one stage, two stage, but it's also entire. Wesley actually spoke in terms of you do not sin anymore. You become sinless. Now, how many of you have been hearing the concourse preachers out there, apparently been last days? Have you picked up the fact that that's their theology? In fact, I was told they had a t-shirt that said, Christian, or, or we, I am perfect. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, uh, it comes out of this roots, by the way. Um, now, I don't have time to walk you through all of that. We can talk about that if that really bothers you. How do they get there? And there are certain passages that they go to in First John, Hebrews, uh, uh, where they suggest, well, Christians can't sin if they're truly, fully sanctified Christians. But they're, they're, they're working off of Wesleyan perfectionism. They may not know that that's where it comes from, but this is John's the one that uh, developed this idea. And uh, thought it through and said, here's the, you know, where we go with this. And, and so if I buy this framework, hmm, it sets the stage for some rather interesting things. And this is not a matter of hypothesis. This is a matter of what actually happened in history. And I'm going to give you what is the, uh, the theological family tree that developed based upon um, uh, Wesley's uh, uh, developing this idea that, that, that uh, conversion takes place in two stages. 
We were justified, and then there's a subsequent event. But it was kind of a big question mark. How do you know you had it? And it was kind of what he called the inner witness, that you just kind of know inside. And, uh, you know, your skin doesn't change colors. You know, the heavens don't open up, and you hear, you know, the angels singing, and you can see them and things like that. There's nothing demonstrative, but you just kind of have this inner feeling and sense of being that I've received it. I've, it's, I've, I've, I've had this moment, this experience in life. Now, let's build on that, and, and let me kind of t- tell you where this goes. And this will all come, this, this will be worth it. Just stay with me. Upon that, in the early 19th century came what is known as revivalism. We've all heard about the Great Awakening in America. Uh, you might have even heard the name uh, Charles G. Finney, who was one of the most prominent uh, uh, promoters uh, uh, and icons of this period of history. Uh, would go across America preaching rather fiery sermons, and, you know, a lot of interesting things took place. Um, what revivalism brought in was not necessarily a theological framework, but it brought in the idea of, of revivalism, emotionalism. All right? Um, his, his thinking was simply this, and you can see things where he comes from, that people need to be emotionally charged up to open up to hear the message of God. That we're so numb and we're so asleep that I gotta get you all, I gotta get you get to a pep rally first to get you all worked up, and then if I get your heart open, then I can preach to you and you'll listen to me. And there's some truth to that. I mean, people have to be awake to hear. And uh, I like to wake a few people up every now and then and, you know, throw a chalkboard at them or something. And, um, uh, but, um, uh, but, you know, if you stop thinking, you know, you can be swept away into anything. And so um, it, it, it had some uh, interesting things. Now, during it's, it's not a coincidence, therefore, given this was the emphasis of, of that era. I want you to know that there were certain phenomenons that began to surface during this period of history in America. Some things you just noticed. First of all, the, what you've termed overall is godly hysteria. Um, for example, holy jerks. You saw, you actually saw a picture of this. I've witnessed all of these things in my life. I mean, seeing people do these things in person. Um, people that would be sitting in a class like you, very normal. Certain, some were students. Some people, people worked from the university here. Some worked in businesses in Auburn. You caught them on the street. They, they looked like normal people. But, they, but in the religious setting, they went to their church. This is the things that they would do. Uh, holy jerks. Uh, just lower your body going through convulsive behavior. Sometimes standing up, sometimes laying down. By the way, where do you think the Quakers got their name? In part. Um, then you have the being swooned in the spirit. You saw one of those where uh, you know, they'll lay hands on you, and you'll notice that the people, they'll just, they, just, they, they just like to get knocked out. You kind of get knocked out in the spirit. And I've witnessed this, this a lot. I, I never had it happen to me. I always kind of, you know, I was kind of like, so if it's really true, let it happen. So I'm I'm open. And um, I've had people come up and put the oil on my head and, you know, put their hand on me and slap me back. But I've always kind of, you know, I'm not really given the hypnotism. And and so, and I'm not being facetious. I'm just saying I'm not. And um, so, you know, God's going to do it. He's got to do it. You know what I'm saying? And I just never had it happen to me. But uh, I've been around people. They just, boom, and they lay out. And and, um, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm... you know, not trying to be silly, but, you know, you'll notice these ladies, of course, sometimes like wearing awfully short dresses, they go fall on the ground in front of you, and people will run up and put blankets on them and stuff, and that's what you see. There's a bunch of people laying on the floor, covered up, you know, and they'll stay there for five minutes, 15 minutes, sometimes the whole church service. 
And they would always wake up with the closing song. I don't know how to put that, but that's what happened. And um, when it came time to eat, you got up. And um, so, you know, I guess the spirit gets uh, hungry too. But uh, I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. Um, holy, holy, holy laughters. Um, I'm talking about whole congregations, literally. Um, we saw some tame ones. I've witnessed where, I mean, they're just literally rolling on the floor in laughter. Um, and um, again, if you say, why are you doing this? And when they can stop laughing, they say, because the Holy Spirit's making me. I can't help it. What? And I mean, just literally, just, you know, by having a giggle box. It was just unbelievable. Um, holy dance, uh, it's just that. Uh, I used to have a, a woman I used to always just sit next to, and it was really kind of interesting. Um, she would always have the Spirit take over her, and she would just, she would leap up on the chair, and she had her tambourine, and I mean, she just went nuts. And um, she would just dance, and you know, of course, you know, I kind of got into it, and, and uh, but she was, you know, the most dynamic presence in that building. And if I, and I touched it, well, what's happening? She goes, the Spirit just takes over. Um, uh, now, this is going to find, this is where you're going to see, it's a little bit harder to, Treeing the devil. Um, now, unless you saw it, you wouldn't have believed it. But during this period of history, you did, what the people would do, they would get down on all fours, and they would bark. And they were in, what they thought they were doing was chasing the devil out of the building. They would literally go out the building doing this. Whole groups of people on all fours, woo, 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 and barking Jesus, the, the devil out and chasing him up a tree. And they would be sitting at the, face, at, the, at the foot of a tree, and the devil's up there. They've cleansed the building of evil influence. Okay? Now, remember, all of this went together. Um, and then, of course, the speaking in tongues, which is a much more common. Uh, presence today, and when we're not sure quite to do it, and I will talk about that to some degree. Um, so my point is, is that if, you know, when you buy into this, this went with it. Now, do I think emotionalism is wrong? No. Anyone got emotions about Jesus in this room? I hope so. Anyone feel very strongly and it just resonates in your life? You ever go to worship and just feel in a wonderful way overwhelmed by the presence of God? But does it lead you to do this? Is it because you guys are too resistant to this movement of the Spirit? Um, but anyway, during this period, you had this. So, so built upon this idea of the theology was this emotions that came in. Now, notice what came in after that is what they call the holiness movement. Now, the holiness movement uh, basically re-initiated emphasis on Wesley perfectionism. The two stages entire, instantaneous, uh, 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 subsequent event of, of conversion. And uh, what they brought in, though, that was new uh, to all of this, was um, the idea of the full salvation, was that they actually identified that second stage with the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit. So have you yet received the baptism in the Holy Spirit? referring to the subsequent sanctifying stage that comes upon your life that John Wesley talked about. There, it was during this period that, that it became labeled as this. It was not labeled as beforehand. Get the idea? Okay. Upon that comes the word that you tend to be a little more associated with. This is what they call the Pentecostal uh, framework. Um, 
in terms of, of churches, uh, uh, if, you, if you grew up in, a, in an Assemblies of God or a Church of God, those were the original Pentecostal um, organizations uh, in America. Now, what they brought into this is very interesting, uh, and it goes back into uh, 1901. Um, uh, on, in fact, on January 1st. Um, you see, the idea of Pentecostalism is that it pushed, pushed beyond Wesley's inner witness and was searching for something that was outward and more tangible. How do I know that I have received this event? I need something more tangible because it was too vague. Other than just say, well, I just feel like I have. So how do I know that I have? And that's what people were again, pushing for more and more and more definition historically. And so out of this emerged, this passion for more, um, uh, came this event. It was, uh, so it's, one of the, it's the first documented historical moment where someone actually received, uh, uh, through the laying on of hands, a Baptist Holy Spirit. Her name was Agnes Os Osmond. It was at the uh, Fox Parham Bethel Bible School. And um, a group surrounded her, and then she began to speak the ecstatic language known as called tongue speaking. And that became the outward manifestation of the inward reality of having received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that was unique to Pentecostalism. Remember, here it was just the phrase, but it was still identified with the inner witness that Wesley brought, talked about. Now, I have an outward manifested thing that, now how do I, when, I, when I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I expect that the outward sign of that to validate that I have actually received the baptism of the Holy Spirit is I begin to speak in tongues. Now, remember, tongue speaking existed earlier than this, but this is when it was identified as the outward manifested affirmation that you've received this moment. Get the idea? And then we move into, finally, uh, what is called the charismatic movement, neo-Pentecostalism, the new Pentecost. Basically, it was uh, this theology moving out of the, the framework of assemblies of God, churches of God, into every denomination. And um, when I was in college, this, was a, this, this, this process was in full swing. Uh, they would hold what was called uh, full gospel businessmen's meetings. And what it was was an invitation to go and hear the theology of this. And people would get up and they would tell you about their experiences of having received the gift of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And they would share their experiences. Then they'd call you up and say, anyone, anyone here want to be joined with this, have this happen to them too? So it really wasn't a business meeting, but they called it that. I always understood why. In fact, it was at a Shoney's here in town that used to be not here anymore. It's a Chinese restaurant now. Uh, they're across from uh, the, the mall, you know, and, um, uh, you know, across the street from CeCe's. That building there is where it used to be. And we used to go there, and that's where they would do this. Um, <clears throat> and very well-respected individuals in the community, some of them, um, uh, you know, uh, some were professors. Uh, you know, if not, uh, you know, if you associate with just absolute ignorance, and uh, that's not, that's not, uh, would not be realistic, um, nor fair. Um, the um, uh, would would ex share their experiences, be eyewitnesses to this themselves, and then call the people to come forward and have this happen. Now, I had it happen to me, and I will tell you about that later on, and what I, how I process all of that uh, later. Um, so anyway, there's that idea. So you see, my my point is, I want you to see that that. We didn't get into the setting of America today with the thinking that we do, with the things that are going on, even globally. It didn't just drop out of heaven. 
uh, it went through a very specific process of thinking and people uh, seeking more and more and more definition. And finally, we end up with a theological framework that people uh, buy into. And of course, remember, it starts here. Until I can understand the idea, unless I buy into the idea that conversion comes to two stages, then everything dismantles. But by buying to this, then this becomes a, a tentative, I mean, a, 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 a reasonable process of thinking. So I, you know, but here's why I have my fundamental questions of what I question scripturally, really what, how, how it t- takes place. Uh, so you get that idea, okay? Uh, kind of keep that in mind as we go through this, and we'll come back to some of these things. Now, what I'd like to do now in the 715, I'm just gonna, we're just going to start a few p- passages and uh, just enough to whet your appetite to pick up next week. Um, <clears throat> First Peter, first chapter, first two verses. Um, most people, when I read the letters of the different authors, like Paul and Peter and John, they skip the first few verses thinking it's just a salutation. You know, dear John. Okay, skip that, get to the skin of the meat, get through that, good, hear from you, blah, blah, blah. Okay, get, skip all that, now let's get to the meat of the stuff. Um, uh, you shouldn't do that with scriptures, because each of these authors, um, uh, they tell you basically what's coming in their introductions. There's meat in the introductions. They don't waste. They, you know, they have economy of words. They, they, they're saying something to you. And, um, and uh, Peter uh, was writing to people who were enduring severe persecution. They literally had the sword poised over their head by the Roman government, and they never knew when it was coming down. They were having their, comp- their property confiscated. They were being placed in prison. They were being fed to lions. They were being burned alive. They were being boiled alive in oil. They were being uh, tied to the wheels of chariots in the Circus Maximus and just being crushed into dust, all for the entertainment of the Caesars and the Roman people uh, who uh, considered the Christians to be the haters of mankind, by the way, and uh, ironically. Um, so a lot of things were taking place, uh, uh, and this was near the period when Nero was Caesar. You all heard of Nero, and he did not like Christians. They were extremely threatened to him threatening to him and his view of the empire. Now, um, so Peter writes this letter to basically this frightened group of sheep called Christians in the area of Asia Minor. Because off the shores of Rome, across from Greece, came up the waves of persecution into that area. And that's what this letter is written to. So he says this, to God's elect, strangers in the world. Tell you what, you feel like you don't belong here when the world around you hates you. Scattered, notice all Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. That's that. You know, you got here. Here's, uh, you know, here's the here's the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Palestine. Up there is Asia Minor. That's all these places that they're listening. All right. You can look back at your Bible, look at your map. It's all there. Um who have been chosen, notice, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling of His blood. Now, what's one of the first things you notice? Because I have it all underlined. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We start with the Trinity. That's one of the reasons why. God, the, all of God is involved in this thing. And notice they all have very distinctive roles. Catch that? God the Father being the one who foreknowledge initiates towards human beings. Jesus coming and dying as the atoning 
sacrifice for our sins. And the Spirit sanctifies us. Now, right there, if I know nothing else, it's the only Scripture I knew in all the Bible, I know this. The Holy Spirit is doing something. Now, the word is sanctify. So let's just start with this as a basic, fundamental building block. What in the world does sanctify mean? Nothing but a stained glass word in this room until you can tell me. Okay, and it would certainly be in the context of that, although it doesn't technically mean that, but yes, it is certainly when you see the verbiage of the writers, they will put it together with those kind of ideas, yes. What else? Okay, and there's your, there's your classic, open up the dictionary, uh, sanctify to set apart, um, um, to make holy. I'm still not quite there yet. Uh, although I'm a little bit closer when I start thinking holy, holy. The Holy Spirit makes you holy. Hmm. <laughs> um, he sanctifies me. Now, deal with this one. Sometimes when you read the word sanctify, it, it's, it, it uses the past tense, completed. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, I think, verse 1. Sanctified, past tense, completed. But other times you read it, it says you are being sanctified. So are the writers confused? What do you, what do you learn from that? Put that in context. It's in your Bible, people. It's there everywhere. So you might as well figure it out. And it's not there just simply so you can have a, a nice little cerebral moment here. Well, you know, see, we've got to be able to translate stuff, otherwise we just move on, and you're no closer to understanding this. And you have to, if you stop a little bit and pause and think and be thoughtful to the words, uh, you can understand what they're saying to you. Um, they're not trying to trick you with stained glass words. They're trying to get you to think about the, the blessings that God is bringing to your life and why you should want to follow Jesus and where it leads you. Uh, when it speaks about it in the completed, the, 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 the past tense completed, when you came to Jesus, you were thoroughly, 100% set apart to God. God sees you as a child of God, not in part, but in whole. You receive the fullness of God. Remember Colossians 2. You don't get part of Jesus. When you get Jesus, you get all of God. The fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus. And you got Jesus, you got fullness. And that's why it speaks often in the Scriptures that you are justified, you are sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all a cohesive whole. It's not fragmented. When you get one, you get the other. It's full. But we also now, having been set apart to God, we also know that the realities of our actual living out of our life, well, there's a lot of flaws there. So God sees me as holy. Now he's saying, act like it. 
But the impression I get, I can't act like it unless the Spirit's helping me act like it. So there is this process, this ongoing, maturing, growing process of me being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the initial understanding of, of, of having received sanctification is the basis of my uh, is the basis of, of, of my understanding of my relationship with God. But then I fall into the obligation to be sanctified, living a lifestyle that actually reflects the holiness of God. You with me? No. Not very complicated. Spirit is doing something. One more text, and we'll call it quick for tonight. 1 Corinthians 6. Now, the Corinthians had a lot of problems. This is one of many, many, many that Paul points to. Um, and he just lines them up. <laughs> just deals with them. Um, some of them, when you hear them, you say, you think there's no way they were doing this. And they were Christians? Um, and uh, but remember, you know, we're, we're dealing with people, just, you know, Christianity just, you know, uh, maybe 20, about 20 years old. Uh, uh, brand new Christians everywhere on the face of the earth in the Mediterranean world where it started. Um, and uh, Corinth was a nasty place. It was, you know, sin city. It was, everyone in the Mediterranean world knew that Corinth was the ultimate place to go to get your life messed up. In fact, uh, in the Greek plays, whenever there was a character who was considered a Corinthian, he was either drunk, always. He was a drunk, or he was uh, uh, involved in deep, promiscuous, sexually immoral behavior. Because that's just what a Corinthian was. And, um, um, and there were reasons for this. And, and I need to explain this because it gives meaning to the text. Um, there on the Acro Corinth, it was a, a, a mountain area that loomed over the city itself. And by the way, we have the archaeology has unearthed all of this. It's really kind of interesting. Um, uh, was a temple, and it was a temple to a certain god. Anyone know what it is? Some of you know. Dionysius. That's uh, Ephesus. Close. Diana. Uh, Aphrodite. Now you go do a little googling Aphrodite, and you get embarrassed reading about Aphrodite. Aphrodite uh, looked embarrassing, first of all, um, and I'll not describe it to you, but uh, it was basically the god of sex. The God of lust. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, who you worship. This is for free, but, um, you know, 50 miles away on a clear day, you could see Athens. And there on, that, on, their, on their mound stood the temple to Athena. And Athena was the God of what? Knowledge, wisdom. So is it really a coincidence that, that, that out of uh, the context of, of that worship came some of the greatest philosophical minds of that day? But over in Corinth, who worshiped lust, what do you think they produce? Um, and you know what was associated with this temple were 1,000 sacred prostitutes. And um, had a little money in your pocket. You could carry on the religious experience. This is the issue. This was a worship. It wasn't like running to the, you know, the, 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 the computer looking at pornography, although it's not too different. But the people would go to the temple. And if the temple didn't go to you, you didn't go to the temple, it came to you. Because every night, the sacred prostitutes would descend the mount, come into the city, and apply their trade. And they were very successful. 
it was said, this was, a, this was a slogan in the first century, not every man can afford a trip to Corinth. And that's why. So, I mean, it was, it was a dirty place. Uh, uh, one scholar says it, it's the mat in which the people who got off the port city there and came on the mainland would wipe their feet before going into the enchanted land of Greece. Um, it was a nasty place. I, don't, you know, I, I just can't, can't quite do it. So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that this church had a lot of hang-ups because these are people converted to Jesus Christ and they were, I mean, their world was, was, was horrendous. And they converted to Jesus and they were serious about it. Um, and they're called, if you know some letters, the Church of God. Paul didn't put them on probation. But he says, now, some of you guys are engaged in going to the temple or joining yourself with these harlots. You're involved in this sexually promiscuous behavior. And how can you do this? So it's in this context that Paul says this. Now, just prior to this text, he's going to basically make an argument. Why should you do this? Now, I don't have time to go through an exegesis of all of this. I wish I did. But I want you to see the context of it. So it's very important. He's building basically a case against sexual ethics for Christians, which was radically different than the world in which they lived. Radically different than the world in which we live. And if you go back to verse, this is uh, starting in verse 18, but go back up to verse 13. Basically, he says, God is interested in your body. Um, and the slogan that the Corinthians were using was, hey, food for stomach, stomach for food. That was their argument. That's what allowed them to say, hey, it's okay for us to do this as Christians. Now, what was their argument? Food for stomach, stomach for food. Put it in your own words. What were they suggesting? Okay, okay. you get hungry, so what do you do? You satisfy the hunger. You eat. You have a sexual desire, therefore, you satisfy that desire too. That's all. It's just a bodily function. Remember, they had built into this, and in this culture, um, they, they, dualism. This was very common. It's not too uncommon today, but we just don't think about it. We're not sitting around a bunch of Greek philosophers espousing this in front of us. Uh, but we bought into this in our culture, that, that your physical body is evil, and you're going to jettison this physical body anyway, so, and you're just going to be a disembodied spirit. So the thing that really matters is your inner spirit, your soul. So what you do with the physical body is just a temporary necessity, the evil of life. So you can go two directions. You can go to asceticism, just deny yourself everything of bodily comforts, or you can go to the other extreme, which is just absolute freedom to do anything you want with it. And, that, and, they, and you'll find in this period of history, people went both directions. And they're talked about in scriptures. It's common sense. If I bind that, that makes sense. They call it dualism. Now, the scriptures suggest that you're not dualistic. You are body, soul, and spirit. And part of the argument Paul makes here is your body does matter. In fact, when God raises you from the dead, he's going to raise up your body physically. What you are in right now is not going to be solely jettisoned. This is the raw material that God is going to use to raise up this new, transformed, immortal, imperishable body. You're not going to be a disembodied spirit when Jesus comes. Listen to the Scriptures. It's the argument of 1 Corinthians 15, which they had problems with that too. But not, not uh, understandable since they bought into dualism. So he's saying, look, God does care about your body. And sex is not the same thing as satisfying a simply a physical appetite of hunger. It's something altogether different. 
and you're trading off something you don't want to trade off. So he goes on to say, well, your bodies are members of Christ. And because of that, when you take what God intended to be this great moment of the sexual relationship is intended to be the most intimate moment of communication between two human beings, heterosexually. Um, if I take what God meant to be the deepest moment of communication in my life and I throw it out in a non-committal relationship then everything goes haywire see when you understand the implications then we understand that God wasn't just saying Hey, I gave you some great desires. Man, I know they drive you, so just don't do it. And I like to just sit back and watch you guys suffer. That's not what God's doing. Um, and Paul's basically walking through his arguments. Here's why. And now, you know, some other class will talk about this, but it's the basic meaning of sex. And he goes on to say it's the only sin that is a sin against your own body. You notice that in this text? Very unusual. The only one. When you understand the intent of the sexual relationship and why God designed this, you, then you understand, hmm, my whole body, soul, and spirit and personality is invested in this thing, and I'm trading it off. And some things are irreversible. I mean, they can't be forgiven, but they're irreversible. And so I've got to deal with this thing, and this is what these people were doing. So in the context, he says this. So therefore, and after he makes all this argument, flee, run as, the word is as, run as in terror from. See a ghost? Woo! I mean, that's, what, that's the word. Panic. It's what Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. He fled. Same word. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know? And now notice what's part of this argument. Here Paul is arguing why this commitment to sexual sanctification, sexual holiness. Because you're already set apart, but now I'm obligating you to actually live this way because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Not hovering around you. Not looking down at you from heaven. He is in you. The clear testimony of Scripture. Read Romans 8 and it will just keep pounding that word at you until you get it whom you have received from God. Notice, past tense, you've already received them. Now, here are people that were involved in sexual immorality, but they have already received the Spirit of God. Remember, it's at the beginning, when you first put your faith in Jesus Christ. So, was the Spirit withheld from them because their lives weren't perfect? No. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, let's look at this word, and then we'll end up the word temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are two words for temple in the Greek language uh, that you'll find. One is the word hieron. We'll get to that. Uh, well, you don't have to worry about spelling that. It referred to the whole temple area. Remember, you had this big, huge, walled-in area, the temple area. They had the court of Gentiles, and you had the court of women, and you had the, the, where the Jewish men could go, and that's where 
uh, just outside the actual building, which was the place where the Holy of Holies was, which is where God actually lived. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And outside that room where the veil was, was the, the showbread and the, the, the candelabras and all that stuff. Um, so there, there's a word for the massive view, but this word, the word he uses, is the naos. N-A-O-S, naos. Um, referring to specifically the inner sanctuary where God dwells. Your body is that inner sanctuary. You had the temple of God in Jerusalem. Guess what the temple of God is now? You. I mean, think about that. Only once a year, and with trepidation, did the high priest walk into that place to, uh, uh, to offer the, the, the sacrifice of the sprinkled blood of that lamb upon the, the Ark of the Covenant. And in case he got struck dead, he wore little bells on his garment so that when the people stopped hearing the bells, they had a rope tied them and they could pull them out. That's where God dwelled. It's sacred. It was the most set-apart moment a person could ever experience under Judaism to go into the presence of God. And only once a year, and only if you have to be one of those lucky ones selected, and they were rare. It was like winning the lottery. I mean, it was, you're a millionaire today. Woo! You know, it's just multi-millionaire. Um, and now we're being told that you, each of us individuals, your body, your physical body is the temple, the naos of God's spirit. Great, amazing piece of theology there. Um. Now, I want you to notice what he says and doesn't say, and this is very important. Um, he's saying very clearly here that, you know, you don't cleanse your body of sin and then God's going to give you his Holy Spirit. He's saying you already have the Holy Spirit, therefore cleanse your body of sin. Very important. And what is the motive and empowering that enables this, the Holy Spirit of God. You see, if it is true that the Spirit of God is through the Spirit that I am able to be empowered to fight sin, I don't need the Spirit after I got my life all cleaned up. That's assuming I can do it on my own. If I can do it on my own, I don't need the Spirit. I'll just do it on my own. God says, do it, and I'll say, okay, I'll do it. And we're going to get this more when we get to Romans 8, 7, 8, 9 next week. And, and, and uh, uh, Sean referred to parts of Romans 6, 7, and 8 when he shared his thoughts. Um, rather, the, 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 the argument is you already have the Spirit of God. He already does indwell you. So the obligation and the empowerment come because he's already in your life. But the truth is, without him, I could not do what he's asked me to do in the first place. It would just be frustration. Um, so the Holy Spirit is a powerful incentive for holiness. I must keep my body as a holy sanctuary for God's Spirit Himself. Remember, He's a person, not a force. Next week we will pick up with Romans 8. Um, let somebody just kind of seep in, think through. We'll pick up, we'll talk some more about what is, when you listen to the New Testament writers, and they say, this is what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. Where does it lead? And you should already begin to get a fundamental picture when you just 
hover around and soak in the idea of sanctification. The more you understand that, the more you understand how to evaluate. So what does the Spirit of God do? Does that person, if you will, on that leash barking, holy? Or is it just kind of unusual behavior? Well intended. Does it make you more like Jesus? Did Jesus ever do anything like that? Maybe when no one was looking? But Jesus does talk about, how do you know the Spirit of God is upon me? Hmm. He had very different things to say, didn't he? Had to do with loving people. Well, we'll get there. Let's pray.